Well, good morning. Welcome to Campus House. Glad you're here joining us this morning. My name's Rick. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are, as Dave mentioned, uh, in a five-week sermon series on the book of Amos. Amos is an Old Testament prophet. And as we've been going through the book of Amos, we have been seeking to understand, like many of the prophets, right, there's a lot of judgment within them, judgment for wrongdoing. And especially in Amos, we see how tied God's judgment of wrongdoing is to social injustice, to the way that human communities treat one another. So last week we were talking about how it's not really just individual wrongdoing, but that Amos and really the entire scriptures are showing us that we are corporately participants in evil or in wrong, simply by being a part of a family, a community, part of institutions in society, that any wrong that is done, we have layers of participation, even if we aren't the initial actors in terms of doing evil, yet we might be also participants in the ways that we treat one another that lead to harm or exploitation or corruption. And so last week we talked about confronting that injustice, particularly what it means to confront corporate evil, to to know that we are responsible to one another and for the systems that we create. And what we said was that being by, by being connected to the communities of our family and culture and society, we do participate in one way or another in what our neighbors become and what becomes of them. What happens to them is related to what we choose to do and how we seek to relate because we are all participants in one another in this human community. So that means we have the power, actually, the ability to some degree or other to shape people's lives, not just our own, but to shape others' lives for better or for worse, for good or for ill. So to confront injustice meant that we were saying we want to become the kind of people that Christians most of all are the kind of people who want to own our part in the story of society, not just the good, but also the ill, to take responsibility for loving our neighbors and also then to take responsibility for righting the wrongs. And so we saw last week in Amos chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, that God calls the people of their society, a corrupt society, to turn, seek good, it says, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. What he's saying is that when we turn from evil ways, from corporate participation in the wrongdoings of society, the judgments God has against those things go away. We're participants again in seeking good, not evil. Hating evil and loving good. We said it was both action and affection. Seek good, not evil. Action. Hate evil and love good. That's affection. Your emotions are tied up into that. But as many of you asked during the week, you asked the next right question, which I think is what uh, the book of Amos and really the entire scriptures are trying to point us to. So what does that actually mean then? How do I seek good? How do we establish justice? We said that phrase, establish justice, is about publicly 
living. Establish justice in the gate meant in the marketplace and in the courts. That's what it meant in Old Testament Israel. So what does it mean to do this publicly? How do we seek justice in our our society in order to counteract the social injustices that are already there? And so we'll continue in Amos chapter 5 mainly looking at verses 21 and 24, because in those verses it shows us that it's not enough simply to refrain from doing evil. We have to go way beyond not doing evil to actually seeking what is good. And the way Amos in the entire Bible describes this is seeking justice and righteousness. Uh, so there is a, you, might, you might have heard someone say this, like, he never did any wrong to anyone. And I heard somebody once say, yes, but did he ever do any right? It's kind of the question. We have to go beyond not doing evil to also actually doing good. So we're going to explore that in, the, in this passage by asking, well, what exactly is justice and righteousness? And how should we do that? And how will we want to come to do that? What is justice and righteousness anyway? Uh, how should we do justice and righteousness? And how will we even come to want to do it? Since it seems like it's quite difficult for us to do as we look around at our world. So what is justice and righteousness? Well, Amos 5 reveals to us that justice and righteousness are the fruit of true religion. The fruit of true religion. What it means is that there is actual evidence to faith. True faith, true love for God results in evidence, and the evidence is a life of justice and righteousness. So if we were to sum up a little bit where we've been in Amos, uh, chapter 3, 1 and 2 showed us that God spoke directly to this corrupt Israelite society through Amos to remind them of their place with him. And what he said was, you're the people I saved. You were a people under oppression. You were a slave people in the land of Egypt, and I brought you up. I saved your lives. I brought you into a new place. I gave you a new home. I established a better law and gave you a greater kingdom for you to participate in. And yet, though I've redeemed you, though I've saved you, you are now the very people who are committing injustices against one another. That's the reason why there's judgment coming in the book of Amos, it says. Because the oppressed became the oppressors. They are robbing one another of the good and peaceful life God wanted to give them, and so they're in danger of his judgment. Amos 5.19 says, this phrase always gets me. It says, when God's judgment comes, when, when eventually we persist so fully in injustice, this is what it's like. God's judgment comes, and it's as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. That's what it says in Amos 5.19. When God's judgment comes, when we refuse to turn, it's like you're running from a lion and then you run into a bear. That's just a bad day. That's just a really bad day. And what Amos 5 is telling us is, look, the people professed faith in God. They had received salvation. They professed faith in God. And yet they were utterly complacent in living their salvation and their faith day by day. They exhibited a total lack of evidence which would make their profession of faith credible, right? So here's what it says in Amos 5, 21 to 23. I hate and despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, says the Lord. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. What do we see in those three verses? 
what it's saying is, it's talking about their worship. Rob talked about this in week two of this series. We've got to bring it up again because he's talking about their worship. What he's saying is, these people are regular church attenders. They go to worship nights. They go to Christian conferences. They took their small group attendance seriously. They fulfilled the Old Testament law of God pertaining to sacrifices. It says they offered the three kinds of sacrifices, burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings. But though they did these things, they apparently didn't care to remember the meaning of them. These church practices, for example, this would be like you and I taking communion or being baptized. These are symbolic representations of our status with God. And these offerings in the Old Testament were intended to be reminders that we were forgiven by God, we were accepted by God, we were saved by God, we had received His his love and His faithfulness. And so they celebrated this in their worship songs, they celebrated this in their community, yet what God is saying is, I don't want any of it right now from you because you aren't living it. Apparently, they worshiped um, from the heart, in a sense, wholeheartedly. They were there. They showed up. It was emotionally satisfying to them, but it was not to God. Something is very wrong if our worship is not acceptable to God. And one simple word shows the contrast. In, In verse 24, we see there's a but. Three verses that say, here's what worship was like. And then in verse 24, it says, but. And if you read verse 21 and 23, in very short time, here are the things that it says. God has this divine distaste with their worship. He says, I hate it. I despise it. I take no delight in it. I will not accept it. I will not look upon it. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen. That's just a lot of negative in three verses. But then there's a but in verse 24. And it's this simple word that brings to our attention the neglected factor in their lives. And the neglected factor isn't their worship. It's not their church attendance. It's not their singing. It's that that stuff has no impact on the rest of their life, which he calls justice and righteousness. What does it say in verse 24? God hates all those, those false worship kind of things, things that are neglected, be, or that they're doing, but yet lead to neglect in their life because he says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What's he saying? He's saying, y'all roll up to worship every Sunday, but when you roll out my justice and righteousness, my character doesn't roll out with you into everyday life, into your relationships. Your worship of me is actually going nowhere. You come to church to be religious, but you leave religion behind when you go home. And God says, I hate it when people only go to worship in a church, and then the rest of their life doesn't reflect the worship that you did at church. He hates false worship, worship that looks good but doesn't produce good in your life or community. He doesn't like false worship. It looks good, but does it produce any good for others, for the sake of the world, for the sake of our communities? When God says in verse 21, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, literally in Hebrew that actually says, I will not breathe the odor. It's like a really strong way. So it's basically saying, I will not breathe the odor of your church services. What he's saying is, they really stink to me, guys. I like that you're doing your Bible reading, you're singing, and you're praying, but also it kind of starting to stink to me because the rest of your life isn't changed at all. This is a very common theme throughout the entire Bible, and maybe just to look at the Apostle James. Uh, he says these things in a couple different ways, which 
And he's also quoting Jesus who said some of these things. James chapter 1, verse 22 to 27 says, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's a man who looks intently at his face in the mirror. But as soon as he goes away, he at once forgets what he was like. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being not only a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep yourself unstained from the world." What he's, what he's saying there is, is your religion like this? It's like you went, you looked at your face in the mirror, then you walked away, and you're like, what do I look like? He's saying, we went to worship, and we said, this is who God is, this is what he's like, this is what he's loved. We go back out into life. What does God care about? He says, true religion results in visiting orphans and widows. Or James chapter 2, he goes further and says in verse 14 to 17, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says they have faith, but they do not have any works? Can that faith save them? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things that they need, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead." Do you see? Real faith in God produces real action in the world towards others who are in need in particular. So what is justice and righteousness? These two words go together so often in the Bible that authors Bethany Hoeing and Kristen Johnson note that these words are a hendiatus, which is just a really fancy way of saying that two words come together to express a single idea. And they each have their own meaning, but when you put them together, they add emphasis to one another. They convey something more than they do by themselves. So, for example, whenever your parents became fed up with you and some of your behaviors as a kid, and they said, I'm sick and tired of you constantly breaking curfew. You know, sick and tired is a hen dietist. They didn't just say, I'm sick of you breaking curfew. When they said, I'm sick and tired, you knew it was for real. Added emphasis. There, and there were, you know, this week when it was negative 45 degrees, uh, outside, maybe someone said to you, I hope you stay nice and warm today. They could have just said, hey, stay warm. But we know what they meant because the added emphasis of nice and warm is someone saying, I don't just care that your body temperature doesn't drop to a dangerously low level. I also want you to be comfortable, actually, even in adverse conditions. Nice and warm. Right? When you, when you put things together, those are just weak examples of what justice and righteousness put together means. They occur so frequently in the Bible that you have to put them together. They cannot be taken away from one another. They add emphasis to their meaning. And what we see throughout is that God personally loves and personally extends His love to all people and then calls them and says, if you know that love, you also become one who extends my love to all people. For example, to describe God, Psalm 33, 5 says, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of His unfailing love. So in connection to His love, if God's going to fill the earth with His love, it means it's going to be filled with justice and righteousness. Or Psalm 89, 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, O God. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Again, 
love, justice, and righteousness are all held together. And there's many, many more examples of that. And this is the exact point uh, that, that Amos is trying to make. There are those who claim to love God and yet do not do righteousness and just, justice. But verse 24 says, when it says, let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. There's two components of this that we'll get into as we keep going. Let justice roll down like waters. Like, you can imagine a waterfall or a mighty river flowing down. It's abundant. The water doesn't stop. That's the picture. Or an ever-flowing. There's never a time when it's not, which means perpetually. So that means for us, the call from Amos, verse 24 in chapter 5, is saying that if you are a believer, if you're a follower, if you've entrusted your life to Christ, if you know salvation, then abundantly and perpetually, continually, in exceedingly great measure, your life just looks more and more and more and more like justice and righteousness. This is the exact opposite of what we've been talking about in chapter 5, verse 7, and 6, 12, when it says, Oh, you who turn justice into wormwood or bitterness and cast down righteousness to the earth, or you who've turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. There's a contrast, right? All that we've been seeing is there's groups of people who don't give a rip about righteousness and justice. It's as if they've thrown it on the ground in order to only work towards something in their own life, their own self-indulgence their own success. But the exact contrast of that is that the people who know God, justice and righteousness is the thing that's just constantly rolling out of them, constantly flowing from them. Justice, the Hebrew word mishpat, is used over 200 times in the Old Testament, and its basic meaning has to do with equity. It has to do with fair treatment of all people. And we talked about this some in week one, but it's, it's this idea that both correcting what is wrong, and also giving people what is right. It's both, both and. So punishment to wrongdoing, but fair to everyone. All people get the same punishment for all the same kinds of wrongdoing. And at the same time, all the people who've been victims or hurt have been given what is right. They are given resources or things to help things get set right. It's both and. So legally, this requires a fair use of power, the proper functioning of a judicial system that doesn't favor one group of people. For example, the wealthy over the poor, white over black. It doesn't do that. It's fair to everyone. It protects the weak from the strong. But then individually and communally, this involves fair business dealings and honest practices and faithfulness and actually keeping our word. If we say we're going to do something, we actually do it whether that's with our family or our friends, whether it's in a business deal, whether it's in school or at work, doing what we say we'll do. It means not taking advantage of the poor or those with less power or protection or privilege than you. So justice means care for the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the homeless, the refugees, the immigrants, the single parents, the elderly, the poor, those who cannot provide for themselves. This must happen both legally and personally. It must happen in our communities, giving every individual the God-given dignity and honor that God has given them in the first place. So in essence, then, justice is setting things right. It's removing what's wrong, and it's replacing it with what is right. Justice especially comes into play because our world is in need of restoration. And we're called to join God in this vision to restore situations and environments so that equity, fairness, harmony can actually coexist within a community. So we want to see a world in which all, all people, all creation are treated rightly 
and given the actual opportunity to flourish. Justice also, though, means then that it's, there's this commitment to having the right kind of relationships, right? Because justice isn't just a code of laws then. It's a, actually about how we interact with each other in a community, and that's really the meaning of righteousness, which is why these things go together. Uh, Tim Keller, after studying all the passages on righteousness, notes that essentially righteousness means a life of right relationships. Or biblical scholar Alec Matier says that right, the righteous are those who are right with God and therefore put all other relationships right in their life. Keller further points out that we struggle, though, with the word righteousness, don't we? Because often we define it differently than having right relationships with God and others. So, for example, biblical righteousness is inevitably social, we're saying, because it's about relationships. It's social. It's about how we relate. But when most modern people hear the word righteousness in the Bible, we tend to think in terms of private morality, right? We tend to think of being good individually, uh, maybe being sexually pure, or having diligence in prayer and Bible study in our morning devotions. But in the Bible, righteousness refers to day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity, which is why we could be really good at doing our devotions, but yet really bad at living that out, what we're learning in our relationships. Righteousness is much more about the relationship than simply about a devotional practice. And when we combine justice and righteousness together, we could simply translate them, the phrase together, as social justice. Justice, fixing what's wrong and doing what's right within all the relationships that we have. Doing so abundantly and perpetually. And also publicly. Because here's what tends to happen, too. We tend to treat our faith in this culture as if it's just private. It's just something for ourselves. And maybe sometimes it affects others. And even others will tell you of any faith, maybe, to say, hey, do what works for you, but just don't bring it up to me. The problem with that is that justice and righteousness rolling out into everything means that it's public. It's personal, not private, but it is public then. And so we have to live these things justice and righteousness in all of our life, in all of our dealings. But then secondly, how do we do that? How do we live justice and righteousness day in, day out in all the things that we're called into? You know, last year around this time, we went through another Old Testament book, the book of Job. And one of the amazing things about the man who's named Job was that he was the wealthiest man in his entire region, and yet it also says he was righteous, which those things rarely go together uh, at times. And it says God personally declares that Job, twice he says, is blameless and upright. Upright also means righteous. Blameless and righteous, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Right? So he did both. He turned away from evil, but he was also upright. He was righteous. He did the right things with others. He did both sides of justice. And there's amazing passages there that demonstrate Job might be one of the best examples we have of what this looked like in the Old Testament. Let me read to you Job 29, 12 to 17, and then part of Job 31. Because what we see in Job, in the life of Job, is that out of him, righteousness flowed abundantly and perpetually, continually. Here's what it says, Job 29. I rescued the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The one who was dying blessed me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness as my clothing 
My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked, and I made him drop his prey from his teeth. Job 31, 13 to 25 and 28 says, If I've denied justice to my servants when they brought grievances against me, what then shall I do when God confronts me? Did not God who made me in the womb make them also? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? If I have denied the desires of the poor, let the eyes of the widow grow weary. If I've kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth reared them as a father would, from my birth I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without garments and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the sheep from my own with the fleece from my own sheep, if I've raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from my shoulder, let it be broken off at the joint. For I dread the destruction from God, the fear of his splendor. I could do no such things to others. If I've put my trust in gold and said to money, you are my security. If I've rejoiced over my great wealth and fortune in my hands, the hand that my hands had gained, then these all also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Do you see what he's saying? It's an incredible picture. And Job summarizes all the possible elements of justice and righteousness. He's an excellent example. And we might say this, that the Bible says that the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community in order to advantage themselves. But the righteous disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the community. Thinking about all the endeavors Job was involved in, thinking about what we've been talking about here, that's a great summary of what, uh, as one, one scholar had put it, the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community in order to advantage themselves. I don't care what happens to you so long as I keep getting ahead. Whereas the righteous, the people who are righteous and just, they disadvantage themselves even in order to advantage others. That's exactly what we see. That's what Amos 5.24 is talking about. That's what Job's life exemplifies. Under this view, we live as people who understand that God in his kindness and his sovereignty called us to steward and rule over his world as he does. So Psalm chapter 8 says, God put all of humanity to be rulers over the work of his hands. And in in chapter 24 of the Psalms, it says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. In other words, God gave humanity authority over the world's resources, uh, but not ownership. Which means that every single thing that you and I have has been entrusted to us for our care, but in order to rule the world well, not in order to rule it to our own advantage and the disadvantage of others. All the stuff here isn't mine. It isn't yours. It's God's. And that means we have to work at it, live in it, use it in the way that he intended. Otherwise, we create the corruptions, what we call social injustice. This is very counterintuitive to individualistic Americans especially because we often tend to think, don't we? I tend to think this too, that if I have gained any success in life, it's because I worked really hard. And the Bible actually upholds hard work as a good virtue. However, it never says that hard work, even as a good virtue, is therefore the cause of all of my success, all of my advantages, all of my achievements. It's not. Those are also gifts from God. 
This is why uh, Job understands that everything he has has to be stewarded for God's purposes. He says this in chapter 31, 24, 25, and 28. If I put my trust in gold and said, money is my security, or I rejoice in my wealth, these are sins to be judged because I would have been unfaithful to God. Job recognizes that everything he has is from God, and he agrees with God that that means much of what he has actually belongs to others. Wouldn't that be a radical shift in our own viewpoints if we thought, parts of my bank account belong to other people. They do not belong to me. Whatever advantage I have isn't for me only, it's also for others. And it's God's judgment against us if we think otherwise. And so Job is saying, how could I not be generous to the poor, to the handicapped, to the widow, to the orphan, when God has been so generous to me? That's what he's saying. Just and righteous men and women see their money as belonging in some ways to the entire human community around them, while the unjust and the unrighteous see their money as strictly theirs and no one else's. Job says, I'm a father to the needy which means he cares for the needs of the poor as any good parent would care for everything their child needs. He was a a parent, essentially, learning to love sacrificially to the economically downtrodden. In Job 31.16, it said, Job says, I seek to fulfill the desires of the poor. And what he means is not just fulfilling basic needs, although clearly we see that Job was doing that in those passages, meeting needs for food and shelter and clothing. But rather, when it says, I want to meet the needs or or seek to fulfill the desires of the poor, uh, as Keller put it, he's seeking to bring delight into poor people's lives. He's not assuming that this is their permanent stuck condition and he just wants to give a few nice handouts. He's saying relationally, right? This is why we know it's a relational thing. You actually have to know somebody to know how to bring delight to their life. And he's saying, I want to know the poor. I want to know the widows. I actually do this. I spend my time going out there. I advocate for them in the courts. I go out with my resources and not just give them away, but seek to learn. How can I actually bring rejoicing to their life? This is why biblical ideas of justice and righteousness are different than charity, because most of us think that charity is optional. But justice and righteousness aren't. They aren't optional. They are actually the fruit of true religion, the fruit of true worship and love for God, the fruit of truly knowing that God loves us and has been generous to us beyond anything we could ever imagine. Job is doing what Amos 5 said, seek good, not evil. Establish justice in your public community and hate evil and love good. We said last week that the word seek there actually means there's an aspect of learning. Go and discover. You have to go discover. You have to seek it out. What is it really going to take for me to do justice and righteousness here? What's it really going to take to set the social structures of our lives into a better place, to right the wrongs and give those who've been hurt what they need in order to recover? I have to go discover that in each particular community that I'm called to live in, my workplace, my family, my neighborhood, my city. It says, Job says, I searched out the cause of him who, who I did not know in Job 29, 16. I searched, so what he says, there's a bunch of strangers out there who I know are hurting in some way. I don't even know who they are. I'm going to go find them and find out. 
I'm going to go search out the harm that's being done. I don't even know about it yet, but I know it's happening because I see the world and I see its brokenness. He said, if I've raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I have influence in the court, then I have done wrong. If I know that I have influence somewhere and yet I only steward it for my own gain, whether it's in the courts or whether it's because I have wealth and power and money, he's saying, I'm actually sinning against God and against others if I have not wielded my influence to produce a life of justice and righteousness economically, judicially, locally, in my family, in my relationships. Friends, let me put it to you this way, since most of us here interact on a college campus on a regular basis, which affords us both great privilege, but also sometimes great isolation from what is going on in the world around us. If we are to use our advantages for the sake of others to help the disadvantaged, if part of all of our assets don't even technically belong to us in God's eyes, but belong to others, then let me ask you, what is the end of your own education? What is it all for? Doesn't what we've been talking about tell us that you are not the end of your own education? As one of my professors used to tell me, your education is, is not really for you first. It isn't for you to attain success and status and financial security only. At least, uh, are we not also to be working for those very same goals in the lives of, of others around us? According to the Bible, it's saying you're not really here at Purdue just to take some classes, to solve some equations, to pass some tests, to write some papers, to do some projects, to get a degree. You are here to do all of that while at the same time considering how will you use your education to let justice roll out of you like mighty waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That is also to be part of our education. And you know what? Purdue's probably not going to give it to you. There's not one class that can cover all of that. But it's about the kind of people we're becoming as we do everything. This means we have to consider how do our academics, how do our vocations work in light of justice and righteousness, not grades and resumes. Those things matter. But what matters even more is what we are using it for. What does it produce? What does our education in us produce in our communities around us? How will you use your degree, your field of work, to participate in God's plan of putting everything right and righting all the wrongs? To see the environment, coding, calculus, structural design, medicine, history, language, and English and is merely, not merely classes to pass, but things to learn to do right by in every way in your life. Let's put this another way. Um, does some of your time while you are in college actually belong to a child in this community to help them to learn to read? Does some of your time while you're in college actually belong to an elderly person at one of our many nursing homes? Does some of your time while you're in college actually belong to learning to love a really difficult person God's placed in your life? Does some of your time belong while you're in college to learning to love someone who's from a different economic or ethnic background than yourself? For justice and righteousness to abundantly and perpetually flow from us, we must come to see that parts of our lives must be generously given away at cost to ourselves in order to build others up and give them advantage. Job said, finally, he said in chapter 29, verse 14, I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. 
Once again, we see the pairing of righteousness and justice, but he describes this as his clothing. And you think about it, you don't go anywhere without your clothing, at least in our society, since I'm not preaching to nudists. And so that means that everywhere you go, justice and righteousness is meant to go with you. It's like your hat. It's like your jacket. It's like your clothing. And so it's always with you. It's always on your mind. It's always what you care about. It's where you're going. You're taking it with you wherever you go. It's this comprehensive, comprehensive vision. It's the concern that's always there to do righteousness and justice, to let it flow from us continually and abundantly. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, learning to do this in the entire situation, every situation in our life, seeking to improve those situations by, he says in Philippians 4, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence or anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Give your attention to these things in all that you do. Because when you do, you will learn to receive and see and practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Friends, the call in our lives is to do justice and righteousness, but the thing about them is they're very difficult to do. We get caught up in ourselves many times, and this is what's so then amazing about why we have Jesus as our Savior. Because what does He do? If we're supposed to go search out, seek, go discover the way in which wrongs must be righted and to give what is good to those who do not have good, well, then Jesus did this par excellence when he came to seek and save the lost, to seek and save the sinners, to seek and save those who were caught in injustice. And so all people who know I'm part of the broken system are those who can also turn and say, Jesus, I don't deserve it, but you came anyway. And here's the thing about the cross of Christ to me is I don't get any religion where the God who loves love and loves justice doesn't actually participate in the system. But you know what happened with Jesus is that he showed up on earth and he went through an unjust trial. He was brutally beaten for doing what was right. That gets me because we have a God If you were wondering, does God care about justice? Would God actually show up to do justice? Does he care? The answer is you don't have to worry about that in Christianity. He did. That's the God that you have. He's the one who showed up to set things right, took all the wrong upon himself. At cost to himself, he disadvantaged himself on the cross in order to advantage us. And the outcome of that, it says all through Scripture, is that he made you and I righteous for those who believe and follow him. You can't make yourself righteous. It can only flow out of you, which means you have to be given it first. And one of the main stories of the Bible is that not only are we to be clothed with it, but we were clothed by him with it. That's what happens on the cross. Jesus comes and takes our dirty rags of broken righteousness and replaces them with the righteousness that comes only from heaven. He is the one who makes us able to have right relationship with God and with others. We might say in one sense that social justice is all about being an advocate. It's being an advocate for those who don't have one. And Jesus came to be an advocate. 1 John 1 and 2 says that if anyone has sinned, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, he cared so much that he came. 
So we care so much now that we go. We go with him into all those places to do justice and righteousness. Let's pray. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor.